Hello. Welcome back to the Crime Shark Podcast. And I'm your host, Baby Shark. Now, I definitely wanted to record this earlier today, but I had a migraine because hello spring. Um, you know, don't know if anybody else has that problem, but this change in temperature back and forth, it can stop. I'm just ready for fall. Let's just skip summer entirely. Who needs that heat? Anyway, in this second episode, I want to discuss a case that ever since I first heard about it, it has really stuck with me. And that's the case of John List. Now, if you've heard this case before, you know how heavy this episode will be. If you haven't, well, you've been warned. But please listen and learn about the monster that was John List. John Emil List was born on September 17, 1925, in Bay City, Michigan, to John Frederick List and Alma Maria Barbara List. His parents have always been described as strict German parents. Anywhere I did my research, everybody said the same thing, strict German parents, and it never really went into detail what exactly that meant. But, you know, that's what they say. John grew up in a devout Lutheran household. And even when he was older, he really kept his faith. He was a Sunday school teacher. And his faith in general just played a large role in his life. It's been noted that his mother doted on him. And during my research, I wasn't really able to find much information about his father, other than that he died in 1944. In 1943, John enlisted in the Army, where he served as an infantry and laboratory technician during World War II. When he was discharged in 1946, he came home and attended the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. John received a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accounting. In 1950, John returned to active duty to fight in the Korean War. It was during this time that John first met Helen Morris Taylor, a widow with a nine-year-old daughter named Brenda. Helen's husband had been killed in action in Korea. The two began dating... The two began dating, but John had been hesitant at first to introduce his mother Alma to Helen. Being the strict Lutherans that they were, he worried about Helen having been previously married. Even though she lost her husband to war, and it wasn't like she had gotten a divorce, John still didn't know if his mother would approve of Helen. John didn't have much money when he met Helen, but with the money he did have, he began showering her with gifts. And Helen's always been described as someone for having a taste for the finer things in life. So I'm guessing that means she liked champagne and Grey Poupon. I don't know. Did they have that back then? John remained apprehensive to introduce Helen to his mother, and Helen began to suspect that this was the case. And since the two had already been intimate together, if you know what I mean, she told John that she thought she was pregnant. 
John and Helen get married December 1st, 1951. This was about three months into them dating. And, I mean, that seems pretty fast. I don't know what you guys think. Only after they were married did John find out that Helen wasn't actually pregnant. This would be something that caused problems later on. John felt as if he'd been tricked into marrying Helen. In 1952, after John completed his second tour, the family moved to Detroit, where John worked at an accounting firm. Then, John became an audit supervisor for a paper company in Kalamazoo, which I think is fun to say. Kalamazoo, for those of you who don't know, is located in Michigan. I can't lie. I had to look it up. Kalamazoo is where John and Helen had their three children. Helen and John had three children together. It started with Patricia, who was the oldest. Then there was John Jr., who was a year younger than Patricia. And finally, Freddie, who was two years younger than John Jr., making him three years younger than Patricia. All of the children were described as active and popular. Patricia was active in drama club, and she was even the understudy for a play. And John Jr. was described as very athletic, and he participated in many sports. John had become the general supervisor of the paper company's account department in 1959. But this is when Helen's alcoholism really began to take a turn for the worse. Helen was also diagnosed with tertiary syphilis, for which she was prescribed heavy medication. Helen syphilis was caught from her hero war husband. Often Helen had compared John and her previous husband, saying how he'd never live up to him and that he wasn't the true hero because he died in the war. But this hero, as she called him, he visited Korean brothels where he contracted syphilis and then passed it on to Helen. She went undiagnosed and untreated for years. Lots of doctors urged John to admit her into a hospital, but instead he paid large amounts of money for private doctors. This would later contribute to their financial troubles. Because of her late-stage syphilis, Helen had developed cerebral atrophy. Basically, what cerebral atrophy means is it's the loss of tissue and therefore the loss of neurons and connections between them. If it affects the whole brain, basically this means that the brain has shrunk, but also it can only affect certain areas of the brain. According to Wikipedia, if the cerebral hemisphere which are the two lobes of the brain that form the cerebrum, are affected, conscious thought and voluntary processes may be impaired. Now, cerebral atrophy actually happens to everyone over time. Our brains reach full mass at age 25, and it actually does shrink as we age. The progression of cerebral atrophy to a more dangerous state is caused by many common diseases and illnesses of the brain, like Alzheimer's and dementia. And alcoholism can contribute to cerebral atrophy as well, meaning Helen's condition was made much worse by her alcoholism. John wasn't very social 
And therefore, he didn't have that many friends. He was a little bit of a strange guy. It kind of seemed like he never really relaxed. I mean, he wore a suit all the time. All the time. Even when he mowed the lawn, he wore a suit. I can barely, like, make it through mowing the lawn in, like, shorts and a shirt. Like, I can't imagine doing it in a suit. But I want to say to each their own, but that's just fucking weird. I mean, can you imagine mowing the lawn in a suit? Hashtag no thank you. John was very meticulous, too. John would fold his papers so perfectly that after reading them, it appeared that they were unread, that they had not been opened. I guess he's the guy you want with you when you need to fold the map back up. Maybe he was a little OCD. It was noted that John was a good stepfather to Brenda, Helen's daughter from her previous marriage. But Brenda got married and moved out right at the age of 18. She had some money from the military because of her father's death. List was kind of a yes ma'am sort of husband, a bit of a pushover. He bottled his emotions and avoided confrontation. When the children were little, Helen would call him, whether he was at work or at church, and demand he come home for the smallest of things. Like even changing the baby's diaper. She would tell him, if you want the baby's diaper changed, you need to come do it yourself. I'm not sure what, like, why Helen did this. Was it just, like, a power move? Like, oh, look what I can do? Or was it really because of what was happening in her brain from the syphilis and the alcoholism? In 1960, the family moved to Rochester, New York. That's my former stomping grounds. Where John took a job with Xerox. It's kind of eerie to think about the List family spending time in Rochester. I wonder if they went to any of the places I went to. Two of the most well-known companies in Rochester were both Xerox and Kodak, so this was actually a pretty good job for John to have. But in the early years of their marriage, John held many different jobs. I believe it was about as many as seven different jobs in a five- to six-year period. And somehow he was able to obtain these high-ranking positions, but he wasn't able to keep them. John was capable of doing his work, but lacked particular social skills that held him back, so he wasn't able to maintain these managerial or executive-level positions. John was also very fearful of speaking in front of crowds, which, as a manager, is something you often have to do. You need to address multiple people at once, whether it's your whole team or just a handful of people on your team. John would struggle in these situations. Part of this was likely due to him wanting to avoid confrontation. Maybe because John never had many friends, he didn't really know how to socialize. I do find it interesting, though, that John was able to teach Sunday school. Maybe it was just less stress than the workplace environment, or John was just so passionate about his faith that he was able to overcome these fears of public speaking. In 1965, John accepts a position as vice president of the National Bank in New Jersey, and the family moves to Westfield. 
Westfield is considered a very nice suburb of New Jersey. There, the family purchased the Breeze Knoll Estate. Breeze Knoll was built in 1895. It's described as a 19-room mansion. John's mother helped with the deposit on the house under the condition that she lived with them. Obviously, Helen wasn't thrilled. But the estate already had an upstairs apartment, so Alma would have her own space. John also believed he would be able to pay his mother back. He just got this great job as the vice president of the National Bank, and he'd be making a lot more money, and he, you know, he didn't like having to take money from his mother, but he was thinking, no, this is just a loan. I will pay her back. The estate had five bedrooms, a butler's room, maid's chambers, two living rooms, a fucking ballroom with a beautiful stained glass ceiling. It had like ten fireplaces. The whole third floor was an apartment. You know, even by today's standards, that was a big-ass house. And I can only imagine how it was viewed in 1965. John was at the pinnacle of success. Or so he thought. In 1966, John loses his job. Remember, he lacked the social skills to maintain executive-level positions. He was so ashamed. He didn't tell anyone, no one in his family, none of his close friends, which I don't think there were many, and not even anyone in his parish. Every day, John would get ready. Each morning he was supposed to be working, he would get dressed and drive to the train station. He couldn't bear the shame and embarrassment of losing another job, so each day he left as if he were going to work and came home as if he had worked all day. Alma, John's mother, had signed over power of attorney to John, which meant he was in control of her finances and had access to her bank account. He began to take money from her account, but always under the guise that he would someday pay her back. He obviously was too embarrassed to tell his family that he lost his job. He wasn't about to ask his mother's permission to borrow money, so he did it all secretly. Helen never left the house anyway, so she never even had suspicion that John had lost his job. John eventually found another job and finally told his wife that he had lost a job at the bank. His new job, though, only paid about half of what he was previously making, and Helen continued to spend money without a care in the world. And I mean, I can't imagine the debt that they would have if they had Amazon back in the day. Like, how do you even spend that kind of money and never leave the house? I mean, that's some serious, like, JCPenney catalog. Like, I guess mail orders and... I don't know what she was doing, but she did it again and again and again, and she just, she's always buying stuff. So it's kind of at this point where John really begins to view his family as a burden. There's no solace in his life. 
he resented Helen because he believed she had tricked him into marrying her because she had lied about being pregnant. And he was resentful towards his children because he was worried that they were pulling away from the church. Patricia was in drama. Her hair was parted in the middle and long. She wore a leather jacket. John didn't like this. He found it threatening. And John Jr. was into sports. He was active. He was popular. And he John was worried about this. He worried that the children were going to lead lives that were going to lead them to hell. In 1971, John was facing bankruptcy. The money in his mother's account was almost gone. John considered suicide, but then he worried about his family having to resort to welfare. He also knew suicide would send him to hell, but poverty was also considered a sin, so he thought that surely would send his family to hell. He considered leaving, just up going, you know, go start a life somewhere else, but it still meant that his family would need to resort to welfare. And he couldn't leave them in that position. So, according to John, the only solution left was to murder his entire family. They were still Lutheran at this point. They hadn't committed any sins that were completely unforgivable. So, surely they would be able to get in heaven. At least that's what John thought. But, Murder is a sin, right? John believed that if he spent the rest of his life repenting, he too could get into heaven when he finally died at an old age. He considered the murders as the only way to save his family. He considered this plan for a month. Cold, calculated, emotionless. Everything to him was very businesslike. So, on November 9th, 1971, John finally decided that was the day. He gets up, he puts on his suit and tie, because I really don't think this guy owned anything but suits and ties. And he goes downstairs and he has breakfast with his children. He didn't act weird, he didn't act suspicious. He definitely didn't act like he was about to murder his entire family. Everything seemed normal. No one really suspected anything. There were two guns used. A 9mm and a 22 caliber antique pistol. Helen gets up and comes downstairs for coffee. When she's finally in a position with her back to John, he shoots her in the back of the head. He then makes his way to the third floor where his mother lives. Alma was getting ready for her day. She was about to have her breakfast. She greeted John with a kiss on the cheek and asked John what that sound was. Obviously, John lies and says something like, Well, that's why I came up here. I wanted to see what that sound was. This is a quote, an actual quote from John List. He said, I kissed her back and I felt like Judas. And then he shot her. And that quote from John just gives me chills. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Judas was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, but he betrayed him. He kissed him and addressed him as a rabbi, which revealed his identity to the crowd that was there to arrest Jesus. 
which eventually led to Jesus' crucifixion. Thus, Judas is constantly a symbol of betrayal and treason. Alma was shot above her left eye. She was the only victim who was not initially shot from behind. So John goes back downstairs to the kitchen where he had shot Helen and noticed the bloody mess he had made. Now this part's going to be pretty gross, but Helen had dentures and there were pieces of her dentures just around her body. So he begins to clean up the mess with a mop and some paper towels. And he places all the paper towels into paper bags on the floor. He placed his wife's lifeless body on a sleeping bag and dragged her into the ballroom. Since the ballroom didn't have carpeting, John thought the sleeping bags would be a good idea because he thought the body should be laying on something soft. After cleaning and moving Helen to the ballroom, he went to his office and he wrote letters to each of the children's schools explaining that they needed to leave for some time to go to North Carolina to take care of a sick relative. John then goes to the bank and withdraws $2,000, which is the last of the money in his mother's account. And he goes to the post office and mails the letters to the school and also makes sure to put his mail on hold indefinitely. John goes home and has a sandwich. Literally, he goes home and just sits in the kitchen where he just murdered his wife and has a fucking sandwich. And he never had a second thought about what he had done or what he was about to do to the rest of his family. 16-year-old Patty comes home. John sneaks up behind her and shoots her in the head. He does the same with Patty as he did done with Helen and dragged her body to the ballroom and placed it on a sleeping bag and then begins to clean up his mess. Second to arrive home was Freddy. He was the youngest, only 13. Similar to Patty, John shoots him in the back of the head, places his body on a sleeping bag, and places him next to his sister. Now, after this, John List goes to John Jr.'s school to watch his soccer game. And I'm not really sure what this is about. I, I don't know if it was if he wanted to go to see the game or if he wanted to go to the game because he wanted to make sure he picked him up and brought him right home so he could finish what he was planning. It's just weird. I don't know why he just didn't wait for him to get home. So after the game, John drives his son home. When they get home, John shoots John Jr., but he doesn't die right away. John Jr. actually puts up a struggle. John List shoots John Jr. ten times. And that's a pretty angry move. For someone who seemed fairly emotionless most of his life, there's a lot of anger surrounding the murder of his oldest son. And it's, it's like... I don't know. It That's always really bothered me. It's like, you can't say you're like this shell of a person and you're emotionless and then you do something so angry. I mean, the whole thing was all about anger. John feels instant relief. He had no regrets about the murder of his entire family. And just like he had his lunch, John eats dinner. As his whole family lies dead in the house, he eats his fucking dinner, and then he goes to bed. It would be a month before anyone would discover the bodies of the List family.
In the weeks following the murders, the neighbors had begun to grow suspicious. All of the lights in the house had been turned on. They noticed they were on all the time, all day, all night, and then slowly, one by one, the lights would begin to burn out. That's kind of like a creepy thing to think about. Just like this really quiet house with all the lights on, and then they just slowly start going off. Now, Patty had told her drama teacher, Edwin Iliano, that if her family goes on vacation, her father had killed them all. Like, she knew. Somehow she knew what was going to happen. And you know, this badass girl, she told somebody. Good for her. I mean, you go, Patty. So her drama teacher noticed she'd been gone for quite a while. Too long to just be visiting a sick relative. You know, she was missing too much school. And she was missing drama practice. And so the drama teacher goes to the house and causes a bit of commotion. And he does this on purpose. He wants the cops to get called. He wants the neighbors to call the police. And that's exactly what they do. The police arrive. They had been there previously because of the calls from the neighbors for welfare checks, but had never entered the property. This time, though, they noticed a basement window was open. Because the family was supposed to be out of town, this was cause for suspicion and considered a sign of a possible burglary or intruder. The police then decide to enter the house. They enter the house through this basement window and instantly they notice a smell. I've smelled dead animals before. It's a very distinct, putrid smell, and probably a smell more common to people working in law enforcement, as they've probably come across deceased people before. Luckily, I've never had to smell a dead person. I really don't ever want to, so I can only imagine that's about a thousand times worse than the small dead chipmunk that I found at my parents' camp, which is how I know what death smells like. Police see all these dead fish in fish tanks and think, oh, that's a terrible smell. That must be what this horrible smells from. So they're kind of relieved, but they continue to search the house. The next thing they notice is that there's music playing, and it's like classical organ music, and it's being broadcasted over the house's intercom system, and it's pretty creepy. Once police enter the ballroom, they see the four bodies. Noting that the grandmother and John List were not among the dead in the ballroom, they continue to search the home. Because the house is so large, it's almost 45 minutes later when Alma is discovered dead on the third floor. But still no sign of John List. In John's study, they find the two guns and a note to the local pastor, Eugene Renwinkel. He was the pastor of the church that the List family attended. The letter was a confession and explanation. John wrote, I know what I've done is wrong. He also wrote, I'm sure many will say, how can anyone do such a horrible thing? 
Which fucking duh, John. We're still saying this almost 50 years later. List goes on to explain how he lost his job and the family was having financial troubles and he was worried the family would have to go on welfare. He also believed his family was losing their faith. He disapproved of his daughter's interest in an acting career. So he sent them to the only place he knew they'd be safe. Heaven. List continued to provide some details on the murders, which is probably why there's such good documentation on the order in which the family members were killed and how. He noted that John Jr. took longer to die, and this is why he was riddled with bullet wounds. He wrote, John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The letter continued, I said some prayers for all of them from the hymn book. That was the least I could do. Well, how noble of you, John. How noble. He also noted, Mother is in the hallway in the attic. She was too heavy to move. I've always kind of wondered if there was more to it than that. Like, maybe John just didn't care enough to try and move her. Or he wanted to keep her separate from the rest of the family because her and Helen never really got along. Or maybe it's because his mother was just really one of the heaviest burdens of all. I mean, if this was a fucking book, that's kind of how that would be interpreted, right? Before John fled, he turned the thermostat down to the lowest temperature to slow the rate of decomposition in the bodies. He then turned on the radio to his favorite classical music channel and broadcast it over the house's intercom. And then he turned on every light in the house. And for his final act, he tore his picture out of every family photo he could find. He knew he had bought himself time. The schools would get all the letters that the family was visiting sick relatives. The mail and the milk deliveries had been placed on hold. They weren't really friends with any of their neighbors, so he didn't really think anyone would notice anything. John's car was abandoned at JFK parking lot with a parking voucher dated November 10th, the day following the murders. But there was no evidence he had taken a flight. Autopsy revealed the victims had all been shot in the head and that they had been dead for about a month before their bodies were discovered. Investigators knew that wherever List was, he had a one-month head start. A nationwide murder warrant for the arrest of John List was issued. John List wanted for the murder of his entire family. This ended up being a very high-profile case. It was sent to every FBI field office and law enforcement agencies across the country. But John List would elude authorities for 18 years. On May 21, 1989, the List family murders were recounted on none other than TV, one of TV's greatest shows, America's Most Wanted, hosted by John Walsh. It took some convincing from law enforcement to get the show to air the case. After all, it was an 18-year-old case. They hardly had any photos of List because he had cut himself out of so many pictures in the house. And they didn't really have a good idea of what John looked like in 1989. 
But after learning more about the case, John Walsh said, This is a guy I'd like to see get caught. Enter Frank Bender. Bender was a forensic reconstruction artist. He was asked to make a bust of John List, but to add 18 years to the photos that they had of List so that viewers could see what List would possibly look like today. First, Bender needed a psychological profile of the killer. He contacted Richard Walter, and together they predicted how John List would age by analyzing the man behind the murders. They made note of his strict German upbringing and his overprotective, domineering mother. They reviewed his lack of social skills, marked by the numbers of jobs he had lost, and considered the stress that would cause someone and how the stress would affect the way that someone ages, especially since Liz killed out of anger and retaliation because of his own failures. Bender also took genetics into account, looking at photographs of Liz's parents, noting that they had jowls. List had a surgical scar behind his ear, so Bender researched how that scar would look as it aged. Bender painted the bust and put him in a suit and tie like he always wore. Then Bender needed one final touch. He had to add glasses. They assumed that the style of frames would have changed from what List wore in 1971, but they knew it was likely List wasn't vain enough to have switched to contact lenses. Instead, they assumed he would have chosen darker-colored, thick-framed glasses. It would make List look more important, more intelligent than he actually was. When the bust and the case aired on America's Most Wanted, it was the oldest case ever pursued on the show. In Denver, Colorado, a family recognized the face. Wanda Flannery and her daughter saw the striking resemblance between John List and a former neighbor. It was the glasses and the jowls that really made them think it was him, so hats off to Frank Bender. He meticulously researched what List would have looked like as he aged and was able to create a bust so good they caught their killer. Flannery's former neighbor was a man named Bob Clark. His full name was Robert Peter Clark. Clark was arrested at an accounting office in Richmond, Virginia. The arresting officer asked him, Are you Robert Clark? And he replied, Yes. And then he asked him, Are you John List? And he replied, No, I'm Robert P. Clark. Fingerprints matched a gun permit application John List had filled out one month before the murders. Bob Clark and John List were the same man. And List wore the same glasses that Frank Bender had picked out. It was uncanny. So what happened when List left New Jersey? He took a train first to Michigan and then to Denver, Colorado. He applied for a new social security card under his new fake name, and he found work. Surprise, surprise, he took a job in accounting. The name Robert Peter Clark, or Bob Clark, had come from one of List's former classmates. From 1979 to 1986, List was the comptroller at a paper box manufacturer. Of course, List found a new Lutheran church to become a part of, and just like he had met Helen, List meets Dolores Miller, 
at a religious gathering. They married in 1985. In 1988, the couple moved to Virginia, where Liz took up yet another accounting job. Strange that a man that murders his entire family basically goes back to lead the same exact life. John List is what is known as a family annihilator. Sadly, we see this type of murderer all too often. Chris Watts, Robert Fisher. An article I read from ABC News had Brad Garrett, an ABC News contributor and former FBI agent, saying, Family annihilators are never spontaneous. He adds that the crimes are premeditated and build up over weeks or months, and this was very true for List. But often family annihilators either commit suicide or confess. List does confess in his letters, but instead of turning himself in, he ran for 18 years. And he wasn't caught because he turned himself in, he was caught because he got caught. And then there's people like Robert Fisher who are still missing, and he's still one of the most wanted men in America. On April 12, 1990, List was convicted on all five counts of first-degree murder. Even at his sentencing hearing, List denied his direct responsibility, blaming his mental state at the time of the murders, but the judge wasn't buying it. The judge said, John Emil List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, 5 months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. List was sentenced to 5 consecutive terms of life imprisonment, and this was the maximum penalty allowed. He died at the age of 82 in 2008 from complications from pneumonia. When he died, a New Jersey paper, the Newark Star-Ledger, wrote word of his death and called him the Boogeyman of Westfield. Now, like all good stories, there's always a kicker. In Breeze Knoll, the family home in Westfield, there was a skylight. The skylight in the ballroom under which the body of Helen and the children were placed. The skylight was a Tiffany original, worth at least $100,000, which today is like $600,000. Had List known, they could have sold the skylight and solved all of their money troubles. Ten months after the murder, there was a house fire. The entire house was destroyed, along with that really expensive Tiffany window. The arson remains unsolved. Thank you for tuning in to episode two of the Crime Shark podcast. I hope you sleep well tonight because I really didn't while I was researching this case. I'd like to give a special shout out to Naptime Nancy. Please listen to her podcast. Also, we both contribute to James Renner's Philosophy of Crimes blog, a case a day series. If this is something you would be interested in contributing to and shedding light on a cold case, here's what you can do. Find an unsolved cold case, stick to three paragraphs at most, describe age, locations, dates, physical description of the missing or unidentified, stick to facts and refrain from theories. 
List law enforcement contacts for tips. Provide three sources with links. And include up to three photos. You can email articles to naptimenancy at gmail.com. I would like to also give a shout out to James Renner. His podcast, The Philosophy of a Crime, returns for season two on April 15th. I'm very excited. That's only a few days away from now. I highly recommend his podcast. Please consider tuning in. If you haven't listened to season one, definitely check that out. Please also consider listening to the Criminal Perspective podcast, a podcast hosted by Andrew Dodge and Chris Dewitt, where they discuss crimes and criminals and interview notorious criminals. It's a very interesting perspective. We actually get to hear from the criminals themselves. You can follow them on Twitter. You can find their podcasts on Patreon. And there are also free episodes available on SoundCloud. Thank you again for tuning in to the Crime Shark Podcast. See you next time.